not sure if you caught the, uh, one of those last lines that Kara sang, um, singing of God's wondrous love. Uh, the line goes, you overwhelm my days with good. Um, and that, I've always loved that line in that song and that thought. Um, I think it's similar to the thought in Psalm 23 that God's mercy and kindness pursues us. Um, and that, that word there is not, you know, follows after. It's, it's pursue like a police car does to someone who's speeding. Like God's goodness overwhelms us, chases us down, and pursues us all the days of our lives. Uh, and sometimes we're not in a place where we can see that. And we don't recognize that it is goodness, even in the midst of struggles and difficulties and trials, that those things are even brought into our lives um, as a way of God pursuing us with goodness. And I think when we get to heaven and when we're with the Lord, that we will see those things as something God brought into our lives, truly that we're good. And he was overwhelming us with goodness. Um, and, and that's a sweet thought to kind of project forward and and think of looking back and going, man, God has been so good. So my encouragement after hearing that song would be just um, try to recognize God's goodness in the midst of life today and the way he has overwhelmed us with good um, in, in whatever circumstances you are in the midst of. So uh, let me pray and uh, one more time and then we'll get to our, our passage in Matthew chapter 5. But let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your goodness. You are good. Everything that you do is, is good, and particularly to your people. Um, you have chased us down with your grace. You have saved us, not of our own doing, but by, by your mercy. Uh, we have been brought to faith and recognized the glory of Christ and the, the sinfulness that we have inside of us and the sinners that we are, and you have chased us down with grace and overwhelmed us with good. And I pray that you would help us, even as we study this text today in Matthew 5, to recognize your goodness in telling us what a life well-lived and a life of flourishing looks like. Be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you can open up to Matthew 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. As you're opening there, uh, maybe some of you have started off the new year by committing to not looking at social media for a few weeks or a month. Um, Bethany and I have been known to do that from time to time at the new year, although I'll confess to you I have not started this year doing that. But one of the realities of social media is that you can curate an image of yourself and put it out there to the world. And so you can, you can control what people see and only what they see through social media. And so uh, you can take a selfie. Um, if you don't know what a selfie is, then God bless you. Um, <laughs> you are in a happy place in your life. But uh, you can take a picture of yourself 15 times and try to get the right angle and the, the right light. And then you can choose the best one of those pictures and you can put that picture up there and write something like, just hanging out today, you know. Um, hashtag blessed or whatever it is that you so you pick the the picture that looks the best and then everyone thinks wow his or her life is going really really well and you can curate that image of yourself 
Well, when you do that and you, you project a particular image of yourself and you always choose the best picture and you always write about the, the happy things in the moment that are going on in a day, then the life that you present to the world is carefully controlled and it's carefully curated. And honestly, it's not the real you. It's not the life you are actually living. It is a fake life that you are projecting to the world. And it's pretty simple to fake it to the world on social media. It's actually in some ways designed for that. But you know what's not easy to fake? Humility (laughs) at all. And humility is probably the most distinctive Christian quality. In the ancient world, the time of Jesus, Culture and society was built on an honor and a shame system. It's very different than the Western culture that we live in. When you and I think about right and wrong, we think in terms of individual guilt and your conscience convicting you or disturbing your sense of well-being and, and notifying you that you have done something wrong. It comes from within. It's, it's focused on the individual. In an honor-shame system, the, the shame lets you know that you have done something wrong, but it's not an individual shame. It's shame that comes from the group. And the way you know you've done something right in that is in that culture, in that society, is you, you receive honor, and honor is the highest ideal or one of the highest ideals that people would pursue. And when you think about an honor-shame culture, when you get to the center of the Christian faith, you have a cross at the center of it. And the practice of Roman crucifixion wasn't just designed to kill a person. It was designed to humiliate a person and to expose a person and to bring shame on a person. And Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross, and he was able to endure the cross because he despised the shame. Even though shame was one of the worst things you could suffer, humiliation was one of the worst things you could suffer in that culture, Jesus endured the cross because he despised the shame, and he looked toward the reward and toward the salvation of sinners. To be humiliated or put low was one of the worst experiences that someone could have in that culture. Humility was not valued at all. And so then Jesus comes along and begins preaching and demonstrating that humility is actually one of the most important qualities that you can possess as a person. And in his kingdom, humility must define his disciples. In fact, Jesus even tells us that he models Humility, And I don't have the clicker here in front of me, so you guys are going to have to click from back there today. Um, But in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus tells us about his humility. Are you humbled right now, Mark, bringing this up to me? Excellent. Very good. Thank you. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is lowly in heart and we want to be like Jesus and to be like our master, to follow after him as we're called to do in the gospel of Mark, then we must pursue the virtue of humility. This is a necessary part 
of being a follower of Jesus Christ, a necessary quality for his followers. And that's exactly where Jesus begins in the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins here in Matthew chapter 5 with humility, describing the good life. And this, again, would have been the exact opposite of what you would have seen in the culture of that time. So Matthew 5, if you're not there this morning, we started last week, and I kind of gave you an introduction and a background to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to jump in this week and study the first set of three, the first triad of three character qualities, verses three through five here, three virtues. And all of these character qualities, I think, describe to us this virtue of humility, which is the title of the message this morning. Let me read these to you. We'll start in verse 1, go through verse 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, remember I told you that word means flourishing, well-being, the good life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, there's a lot we could say about these, and volumes have been written on the Beatitudes and certainly on these three character qualities. But I want to focus our study of these three uh, on uh, three different areas this morning. So don't get lost in all the triads this morning. First of all, I want to explain to you what each of these qualities are right? I mean, I think that's a fair way to go about it. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And we're going to try to open that up this morning. And then I want to explain to you how that virtue, that character quality, poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, results or relates to the outcome that is in the second part of each of the Beatitudes. So you see this description, blessed are, or flourishing, or well-being comes to those who are poor in spirit, and then you have this outcome that is described, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to look at both halves of each of the Beatitudes, and then the, the third part of what we're going to do with each of these Beatitudes is we're going to talk about how they are countercultural, and this will help us to see how this vision of well-being and the good life is exactly the opposite of what we have all been trained to believe is a good life by our culture. And it's so important that we trust Jesus and the vision that he gives us of the good life. These qualities are not what you would expect. They are counter-cultural. So three parts to help us grasp each of these virtues. Before we get into those, though, I want a little aside here, and I want to show you how the Beatitudes work as the first part relates to the second part, okay? So you've read these Beatitudes so many times before, you know these, maybe some of you have these memorized, but in each of the Beatitudes, you have this blessed are the poor in spirit, and then you have four, this outcome, you have the character quality, and then you have this outcome that is described there. And one of the big questions is, how do these two relate to each other? What are we talking about? Is this a reward for having that quality of character? What's the relationship between these two parts? And it's important for you to understand this as we study through these. So think of the relationship between the first part, the character quality, the blessed part, and the second part, the reward portion, as intrinsic. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that word. I'm not just going to dump that on you and leave it there, okay? Intrinsic. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say that you are going to... You want your child to take piano lessons, 
okay? And you want them to take piano lessons for a year, and you tell them, okay, you're trying to motivate them, you want them to take piano lessons, and there are a couple different ways you can motivate them. One is you can say, if you take piano lessons for a year and you practice every day for 30 minutes for a year, I will give you $500 at the end of the year. Now that would be motivating, probably to most people, to take piano lessons. Or you could say, I want you to take piano lessons for a year, and at the end of the year, you will be able to play your favorite music on the piano. The Greatest Showman, my kids love that soundtrack right now. So you would tell your kids, you will be able to play all the songs on The Greatest Showman if you practice the piano for the next year. Now, the first motivation there is a mercenary motivation. It's not wrong, it's not bad, it's not immoral to promise your kid $500 if they will take piano lessons. But the, the reward, the outcome, is not naturally connected to the activity that is being done. It's mercenary. There's, there's really no reason for the $500 reward for practicing piano. It doesn't go together hand in hand. But the motivation of being able to play the music and the reward or the outcome of being able to play the music that you love and you can sit down and you can play it, that is an intrinsic outcome to the activity. If you practice the piano, this is what will be the result at the end of the year, and that motivation leads you to do that. That's intrinsic to the activity. The outcome is natural to the activity. That's what's happening. That second one is what's happening in the Beatitudes. These are not random mercenary motivations or outcomes. They flow naturally from the quality, from the virtue that is being developed in the individual here. So if you are a person who is poor in spirit, you will possess the kingdom of heaven and you will live the good life because you have and possess the kingdom of heaven. The outcome of receiving the kingdom flows naturally from being a person who is poor in spirit and putting on that quality. So I want you to see that connection because it's really important for reading these correctly so you're not viewing the outcome as some random mercenary reward for doing these, these qualities and putting on these qualities. So here's what we're going to see this morning as we study these Beatitudes. Three aspects of the virtue of humility. All of these are focused on humility, and these define kingdom disciples. Three aspects of the virtue of humility that define kingdom disciples. There it is on the screen. And the first one of these, obviously, is kingdom disciples are poor in spirit. So what does it look like to possess the quality of being poor in spirit? Well, when you hear the word poor, and when I hear the word poor, we naturally think of someone who has no material goods or very few material goods. And this word is used throughout the Bible to speak of those who are destitute when it comes to financial wealth or material goods. It's the same way you and I use it today. That is what this word means, poor. Believe it or not, there's an Old Testament passage that provides the background for this first section of the Beatitudes. It's Isaiah 61, and it uses this word poor. This passage is a promise to the exiles that God will come to them and will set things right, and here's what he says. And obviously, you know, Jesus picks up this passage and says, these things are being fulfilled today in your presence. But here's the promise in Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So these are exiles 
in this time that he's bringing them to. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So this word poor is used here of exiles, the, the people of Israel who were shipped away to other countries. Now, when you think about an exile, it's hard to picture someone who would be a better description would be poor of an exile than an exile. Um, someone who is out of their home country, they're not in their place of residence, the web of relationships that they can go to for help and for support, they've been disconnected from that web of relationships, the, the familiarity of a job that they've had for a long time, maybe even a family, all of those things are gone and they're in a completely different country with no resources, that person would be someone who is poor. They don't possess anything and they don't even have access to the things that they need. Now, of course, in the Beatitudes, if you look at verse 3, there's a qualification here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, okay? So Jesus is not just talking about, he's not primarily describing someone who is financially destitute. He's not saying the good life is lived by those who don't possess any material goods. But I will say the poor are more likely to see their need here. And so I think there is some element of freedom from material goods that, that does lead to the good life here. And I think that is a little bit of what Jesus is getting at here. But he's focusing on those who are poor in spirit. And what this means is they are those who recognize their need. And they see that they do not possess anything. They don't have anything of spiritual value on their own before God. They are humble, they are needy, and they feel it deeply. That's being poor in spirit. One author described it like this, and I'll read it to you. Um, maybe you can't quite see it on the screen there. Membership in the kingdom of heaven and God's blessing are supposed to belong to the spiritually wealthy, the spiritually together, the righteous, the rich, and the beautiful. Here, the blessings of God are promised to the spiritually poor, the wretched, the wayward, those who come to Jesus in perpetual need because they are empty and they know it. And that's what he's talking about. But keep in mind here that we're talking about, as I told you last week, we're talking about a virtue or a disposition. This is not a quality this is not something you experience one time, say at the moment of salvation, and you realize you're spiritually needy, and then you, you sort of don't have this experience anymore. This is a virtue, a disposition that is true of a kingdom disciple, of a follower of Jesus. This is a way of being in the world and of relating to others and to God that should characterize, characterize each of us as a believer. It's not something that you get one time and you move away from it's a characteristic that we grow into and we develop and it becomes who we are. This becomes how we see ourselves and how we see God. Being poor in spirit means I know I have spiritual needs. I know I'm a sinner. And so I look away from self and to God to meet those needs. And that's really the key part of this. You look away from self and look to God to meet spiritual needs. There are two counterfeits to this that are very prevalent in our lives. Of course, one of those would be spiritual pride. I don't think that I have spiritual needs. I don't think that I need God. 
And of course, rather than looking to him, because I don't think that I need him or have spiritual needs, I look to self for happiness, for well-being, and for meaning in life. And that is so prevalent in our society today, in our culture today. Look inward, find the God within, and you can be happy, and you can follow your heart, and you can live the good life if you'll just be true to yourself. That's the complete opposite of being poor in spirit. The other counterfeit to this is sort of on the opposite side, and it's spiritual worthlessness. Rather than recognizing my spiritual poverty and my need for God and turning to God, I recognize my need, and then I turn to self, and I wallow in shame that I'm just not good enough, and I just can't do it. And the problem with both spiritual pride and spiritual worthlessness or shame is that both of those end up in the same place, turned in on self rather than turned outward to God and looking to Him for the help that He provides and the grace that He provides. Jesus is saying here that the good life, a life well-lived, comes from recognizing my complete and total lack of spiritual resources, And rather than turning to self and looking to self in pride or in shame, I turn to God and I trust Him to meet my spiritual needs, things I can't do for myself. And so what's the outcome? When you have this quality, what is the outcome? Well, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only those who know their own poverty, turn to God in repentance and faith, will enter the kingdom. When that quality of being poor in spirit defines you, you will possess the kingdom. You will enter the kingdom. And this idea of the kingdom of heaven pulls together all the expectations and all the hopes that God will make things right when the Messiah comes, and all of that will be yours and accessible to you when you recognize your need and turn to God rather than self. Now, you can see how countercultural this is. I probably don't even need to explain this part of it to you. The good life as one of spiritual poverty, of knowing I have no resources to bring to the table, that I have nothing to offer spiritually. In our society, the good life is said to be lived by those who can provide for every need that they have in a moment. Anything I want, I'm self-sufficient. If I want it, I get it. But here Jesus is saying that we were created to live as dependent creatures. We were not created to live independent of God and self-sufficient. We were designed to live as dependent on Him. And so to live with the grain of how God has created us and to live a life of well-being and flourishing, we need to recognize our dependence on God and continually turn to Him to meet our needs. And I'll tell you, nothing is more abrasive to the American spirit than telling a group of Americans that they need to recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, they don't have it all together, and live on the mercy of another person. Last year, I read a book uh, on humility called Humble Roots by uh, a woman named Hannah Anderson. Uh, I'd recommend it to you very highly. Great book. She's a wonderful writer. She lived about an hour, hour and a half from us in Virginia. Um, But 
Hannah said that in the book, she said when she was starting to write the book, she had all these ideas kind of bumping around in her head about writing on humility and all of this, and a family friend asked her, what are you gonna, what's your book gonna be about? And she didn't really have it clarified in her head, and so she sort of said something like, well, I, I, I wanna write about humility, and I think we all need a little more humility in our lives. And her friend responded and said, well, I can write that book for you in three words. You're not God. That is the essence of poverty of spirit. At its root, it's recognizing that I don't have it all together, that I can't provide for everything I need, and I need God. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, come on, I know I'm not God. But how often do we act like we are? How often do we worry about things that are completely out of our control and we fail to trust the sovereign God because we think we've got to figure it out and we've got to nail everything down? We are acting like God in that moment. How often do we put ourselves in the place of judgment on others in gossip and complaining rather than trusting the Lord and believing that he's the one who will judge? How often do we look inward for meaning and for happiness rather than looking outward to God and reading his word and going to him in prayer? Poor in spirit, you're not God. That's the first one of these aspects of humility. But there's a couple more. Three aspects of the virtue of humility that define kingdom disciples. They are poor in spirit, and secondly, they mourn. Now here, I would like to start with the, the countercultural nature of this, because on its surface, this is hilarious, really. If, if what I'm saying is right, that Jesus is arguing for the good life and for a life of flourishing and well-being, a life well-lived, really getting all you can out of life, then the idea that someone who is mourning is living a life that is good and is flourishing, that's crazy. In whose universe is Someone who is living the good life mourning as a character quality, as a, as a part of who they are. Mourning is done by someone who has lost something that they want, something that is valuable to them. Mourning is done by someone who life has not unfolded for them the way they wanted it to, the way they expected it to. And so in what sense is a good life a life of mourning? This certainly does not follow current cultural wisdom or any culture's wisdom at all. So who is Jesus describing here when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Who's he talking about? Well, to understand this virtue, again, you have to see this as rooted in Isaiah 61, that same passage there where promises are being made to the exiles that God will do good and will set things right and we'll come to them. And this word that's used here, mourn, is used three times in verses two and three. I think I put, yeah, here we go. Verses, I think two through three are up there. Maybe it's two through four. Either way, came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And I'll stop there for now. 
But the, the exiles are the ones who are mourning here. He uses that three times to talk about the exiles. Now, we've already talked about the difficulty of living as an exile, right? I mean, you are you're poor. You're out of your comfort zone. You're out of your web of relationships that can help you and that can provide for you materially. And that would certainly lead to mourning. Life has not worked out the way you thought it would. Things are not going well for you. You have lost things that are significant to you, that are important to you, and so it would be a very natural outcome to that to mourn over losing those things. So the exiles here are mourning, but they're not just mourning because life is hard, because circumstances are hard. Why were the Israelites in exile to begin with? Because of their sin. And so the exiles here are mourning because they know why they're in exile, because they are sinners. And so when you get back over to Matthew chapter 5 from Isaiah 61, the virtue that Jesus is calling for here is a recognition that the world and my own life is not as it should be. And it's not as it should be because of sin, because of the fall of man and the brokenness of the world. God's kingdom has not yet arrived. And so you and I live in the midst of a sinful and a broken world. And God's promises seem to lack fulfillment now. And that brings grief to us. Things aren't as we would hope they would be or as we would like them to be. And so people who exhibit this quality of character, this disposition, this way of being in the world, they feel the brokenness of the world. They feel it deeply and they empathize with others who are experiencing injustice and are being sinned against. Another author described it like this. As a virtue, mourning means a disposition that opens itself to grieve unrighteousness, human depravity, and brokenness wherever they reveal themselves. The mourning here is not just over difficult things in life. It's so important that you see that. I'm not just upset. I'm not just mourning. I'm not just broken because things haven't gone the way I want them to. The important part about this virtue is that you have to make the connection between things not going the way you want them to, the difficulty of life, and the brokenness, the sinfulness of the world. You have to make that connection to really mourn in the way this is being described here. And it's vital to do that because of the outcome of mourning. If you are mourning in the way that Jesus is describing here, you're seeing the brokenness of the world, you're grieving over the brokenness of the world because you're seeing it accurately, and then the outcome in verse 4 will happen. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for or because they shall be comforted. So intrinsic to this quality of mourning is comfort. Why? Why can, why can he expect that? Why will that be true? You don't always get comforted when you lose something that you love or when things aren't as they would be or they should be. But when you connect the brokenness of the world to man's fall in the garden and then you see that things aren't as they should be because of man's sin, then you immediately turn and you understand that God has put together and is executing a plan to make things right and to fix the brokenness of the world. He has promised to address our brokenness by addressing our sin. 
And so we mourn and see things as broken, but then immediately there's a turn to comfort. And as you mourn correctly, you know that God will make things right. And so the outcome of this virtue and this disposition is to be comforted because you trust in God's help. And you can see that promise if you go back and read Isaiah 61. Over and over again in that passage, he promises them comfort and he promises them that God will come and will make things right. And so the mourning here cannot be divorced from the hope in God's future full and final reign. It's recognizing that the status quo is not good enough now, things aren't as they should be, and then looking toward the future and looking toward the day when things will be fully and finally made right. Those who mourn are filled with the expectation and hope in a new day. Now, how is this descriptive of the good life? Living life well requires appropriate mourning because mourning reckons with the world the way it is. You recognize why things are broken and you anticipate the way the world will be. True mourning is rooted in a trust in God's plan and in the story that is unfolding in the Bible. True mourning and the comfort that comes from that knows exactly where we are in God's story, his story of redemptive history. And we live the good life because we recognize that and we trust in him and there's comfort that comes from that. So that's the second aspect of humility, mourning over the brokenness of the world. And the third one is in verse five, they are meek. So if poor in spirit in verse three has to do with our disposition before God, then being meek has to do with our disposition before other people. The meek are those who've been humbled before God. They don't throw their weight around with other people. They don't seek to dominate other people. This is the same word that is used of Jesus in Matthew 11. It's translated gentle. It's a good idea, a good description of someone who is meek. Think about how Jesus carried himself in the last hours of his life. He was slapped, he was spit on, and he did not respond in kind. That was meekness. He was gentle. Sometimes you hear meekness defined as strength under control. Maybe some of you have heard that before. I've heard that definition before. That's helpful in some ways um, because meekness is not passivity. Uh, it's not uh, weakness. It's not just letting someone run over you all the time. But the real focus of this virtue, of this quality, is on the reason for why you can endure without responding. It's why you can remain strong when you're like Jesus and you're getting slapped around and spit on. How can you do that? The meek person is able to stay under control. They're able to have strength in the midst of that difficulty because they have entrusted themselves to God's care. They know who is sovereign. They know who is in charge. Now, what's the outcome of meekness? Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. So this is also rooted in the Old Testament, and this exact phrase here is in Psalm 37. So I want to read you the first couple of verses of Psalm 37, and then we'll get to where this phrase is used here. 
But Psalm 37 opens like this, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. There will always be evildoers in the world, in our broken world. There will always be a reason for mourning, for recognizing that. But rather than being overly concerned with them, we trust in the Lord. We look to his sovereignty and to his care. Trust in the Lord leads to this quality of meekness and gentleness, this disposition, this way of being in the world. Then if you go down to Psalm 37, here's where Jesus quotes from, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace." Those who are gentle, those who trust the Lord and don't respond in kind and don't follow the path of the evildoers with outrage and anger and bitterness, seeking to dominate other people, those who live that way and who have that character quality, in Psalm 37, those Israelites will inherit the land. They will be the ones to possess the land. That meant the land that God had promised to Israel. But it's interesting If you go back to Matthew 5, what does Jesus say there? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so if you're you're an Israelite listening to this, you know this verse from Psalm 37, that the meek will inherit the land that God had promised them. And it's almost here like there's been an expansion of the land to encapsulate the whole earth. And that you will be prepared to reign with God forever over the world, to reign with Christ over the world when you have this quality of meekness. Now keep in mind, when Jesus gave this, there were zealots in Israel, and the zealots were passionate about getting the Romans out of the land, and they used any means necessary to do that. They were violent, they were outraged, they wanted to get the Romans out of the land, and Jesus comes along and says, that's not the way to do it. The way to be prepared to rule and to reign and to possess the land is to be a person who is gentle and who is meek. The meek do not respond to difficulty and oppression with anger and outrage, but humbly trust God, trust his timing, and trust his sovereign hand. And that fits you to reign with him on earth in his kingdom. Now, of course, all of this is shockingly countercultural, right? I mean, meek and gentle people do not possess large amounts of land. Our culture tends to view meekness as spinelessness, and they get pushed around. And we think of those who possess land as those who are strong, who win the day, who push other people around, who dominate, they're savvy, they're harsh. But Jesus says here, those who are fit to reign with him and truly live the good life are those who entrust themselves to his care and his sovereignty. They are meek. And so you've got three aspects of the virtue of humility here. Those who are meek, those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit, and all of those, Jesus says, will have the good life on earth here and certainly in the future with him. Now, keep in mind here, he's not giving commands. I talked about this last week, but these aren't commands to you to put on these character qualities. What Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture 
of the good life, something for us to behold, to study, to look at, and it's a picture of humble reliance on God, recognizing we need Him for everything. It's a picture of one who sees the brokenness of the world and then makes the connection to God making everything right in His kingdom. And it's one of gentleness despite the outrage and the anger going on around us. It's a person who responds meekly and gently in their dealings with people because they will be fit to reign with Jesus throughout eternity on this earth. That's the picture he's painting of his kingdom disciples. And I don't know about you, but when I see this picture, when I think through these character qualities, that is a person that I want to be. And I want to put on those character qualities and I want to develop in those areas by God's grace. But this is only the beginning. There's a whole lot more in this list of qualities of the one who possesses and who lives the good life. And so I'm excited to look at those in the coming weeks. But let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the picture that is painted here for us of the good life. The virtue of humility is not natural to us. We are prideful people. We are focused on self. We don't mourn over the brokenness of the world. We don't hope in your rule and reign coming. We're not meek often. We're, we're harsh. We lack kindness to others. But by your grace, by the work of your Holy Spirit, by the picture that is given here, you motivate us and you challenge us to begin to acquire these virtues and to grow in them so that we can be people who live well and live in light of your coming kingdom. I pray that you would continue to do your work in us, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.